Welcome to CSF. Today we'll be talking about the People's Mujahideen of Iran and the Pahlavis. These might be really obscure terms to anyone listening, and I don't blame you for not knowing the names out of hand. They're both, to, to a certain extent, you'd call them opposition groups to the Islamic Republic of Iran, but they're probably a lot more than that. Today, to explain the background for both of these groups and how they play into modern Iranian politics, we've got Matthew Petty, an investigative journalist at the National Interest, and Seamus Malik Evzali, a writer and journalist. Thank you for being on CSF. It's good to be with you. Seamus, could you introduce the MEK? Who are the MEK and where do they come from? Uh, the MEK uh, started out as an Islamic Marxist opposition group um, back in the era of the Shah, uh, during the Shah's time. Um, at the time of their inception, Iranian communism um, was considered, at least by the majority of people, to be an ideology primarily held by upper-class people, uh, upper-middle-class people, um, very theory-heavy, very... Um, it's very much an ideology for literate people, and at a time when literacy in Iran um, was very, very low, working-class people were not included in that kind of movement. Um, the MEK were able to become as popular as they were because by synthesizing Islam, which was a very popular ideology with the working class at the time, Islamism, and with the socialist ideology of communism, um, they were, by synthesizing that, they were able to become very popular and um, a significant force to be reckoned with. Um, in 1979, when the revolution happened, which they helped bring about alongside a wide coalition um, spanning across the political spectrum, uh, they ran in elections. They almost were able to get in, um, but some of them were disqualified. Um, others that were allowed to run um, got close but did not win. Um, and then eventually, when the first president of Iran, who was himself an Islamic socialist, when he was ousted by Khomeini for um, allegedly working against government, uh, the MEK assisted uh, the first president of Iran with leaving the country and forming an, an opposition government in exile. But it very quickly became apparent that just like how the ideology of Islamic communism was very pragmatic rather than an actual coherent ideology, that pragmatism could be moved in any which direction, and it became um, a truly insane cult. Um, Masoud Rajavi, who is, who is still technically the leader of the group, but he's been missing since, since 2003, um, he led the group to become uh, aligned with Saddam Hussein. They invaded Iran alongside Iraq in 1988, leading to uh, a massive defeat at the hands of Iranian military forces, after which, um, while they still remained on the terrorist list, uh, on the United States terrorist list, they began courting American politicians, adopting a very um, vague, but still very vaguely conservative uh, ideology, very, very pro-American, and at this point have become devoid of anything other than wanting power. Um, any shred of Islamic communism that they once had is, is gone. Uh, and that's basically where we are at today. That's where we're at, but I think there's a lot more to this. Um, and why I say that, I, I'm by no means very acquainted with the, the MEK. They they get picked up on my radar through learning about the US actually. So the, my lens of looking at the MEK is through State Department politics. Why do we keep hearing about the MEK from the State Department? And what is the connection? Um, the MEK has an extensive, extensive um, network of paying off politicians, uh, large and small. Um, some of this funding comes from members themselves who oftentimes will steal money from their families, much in the same way that other cults will do. 
Um, aside from that, there is um, evidence from papers like The Guardian that they're being paid by Israel to fund their various dealings, and that, of course, goes into that. Um, whether or not they are funded by the U.S. and Saudi Arabia, that is dubious. However, they have extensive connections with Saudi government officials who speak at their conferences and speak out in favor of them. Media outlets align with Saudi government to support them. Um, through those payments, they are able to pay off American politicians like John Bolton, for example, who was the uh, national security advisor to Trump until very recently. Um, Rudy Giuliani, who is Trump's personal lawyer, obviously very connected there. Um, uh, foreign politicians who are also aligned with conservative U.S. politics, like Stephen Harper, they also speak in MBK conferences. Newt Gingrich, another conservative U.S. politician, speaks in MBK conferences. Um, f- by paying off American politicians to the sheer extent that they do, um, the MBK is able to wield immense influence with the State Department that even the Pahlavis, who are very ingratiated with the State Department, um, they don't have that same, um, I don't know what the term would be, they're not considered as able to be a government-in-waiting as consistently as the Pahlavis do. The Pahlavis are considered a transitory figure, while the MEK is considered much more of a, a system that can be put into place as an ideal already. That is uh, interesting. I mean, if, I personally the kind of don't like the, the the explanations that go into lo- lobbying and payment because uh, there's always someone with more cash there's always someone who's going to pay a little bit more to get a little bit more access and that doesn't usually uh, amount to much when it comes to real influence but regardless of that I, I have seen statements by uh, the State Department and Pompeo in particular that uh, make very little sense when it comes to the MEK, presenting them as some sort of a main opposition uh, in Iran. And uh, the way I know Iran is, uh, I mean, to be honest, it's peripheral because I I pay attention to the Kurdish politics. But there is no, in my mind, main opposition in Iran. There's uh, about a zillion different political groupings that would maybe claim to have some sort of representation abroad, uh, but I don't really know what kind of backing they have at home. What Do you have any clue what kind of uh, local backing there would be for the MEK inside Iran? There is, yeah... Uh... Petty is probably butting in to agree with me. Um, and, and the MEK, out of all the opposition groups that are splintered and scattered uh, across the diaspora, um, the MEK has by far the least. Um, even the monarchists who uh, I've been trying to convince themselves that they are they are the popular option, even though there's not really any polling to suggest that, every single opposition group that exists to oppose the Iran government Almost all of them agree that the MEK is evil and bad and must be opposed. Um, they hate the MEK more than the Islamic Republic, to a certain extent. Um, that was any popularity that they had with the working class um, that existed before 1980. Uh, that was torn away uh, bit by bit um, as the 80s went on, and it reached an all-time low um, when they invaded Iran with Saddam. And an operation that was then followed by chemical weapons attacks on civilians. Um, so yeah, the the MEK they have they have agents inside of Iran who will occasionally um, put up posters of Maryam Rajavi, who is the current leader. Uh, they will sometimes put up uh, banners over bridges, but there is nothing to suggest that there is an underground network capable of overthrowing the entire government and then walking into. Uh, a wide, popular uh, hug, as it were, that that simply does not exist. Yeah, I would add that the agents within Iran that they have seem to be, in addition to lobbying money, one of the reasons why they have such cachet with um, foreign governments. It, It does seem like they are an extremely useful asset to various intelligence agencies, if I remember correctly, they were some of the first uh, to reveal that Iran had a nuclear program publicly. 
Uh, and there is reporting that suggests that they were, that they carried out some assassinations of Iranian nuclear scientists a few years ago on behalf of Israeli intelligence. So it does seem like one of the reasons why the U.S. is cultivating them apart from politicians get, taking money from them or having a good relationship with Maryam Rajavi is that the that whatever popular whatever networks the MEK has within Iran are are even if they're not deeply rooted in the population they are well placed enough to carry out whatever kind of clandestine work needs to be done mm. yeah yeah uh, having extensive contacts with Israel who have been um, working to assess an Iranian nuclear scientist that is obviously a pretty good asset for the U.S. to have, even if the U.S. doesn't want to directly outright support the MEK as they would with uh, Guaido in Venezuela, for example. They want to keep a, a, a bit of a distance there. How I mean, considering how it went with Guaido, I, I understand that, but... Um... Hey, Elliot Abrams now, the guy who is behind that, is, uh, <laughs> as of the afternoon we're recording this podcast, now the State Department official in charge of Iran. So, well, we'll see what happens with that. It's, it's a bizarre world, what can you say? But uh, one, thing, one thing that you mentioned is something that I, I keep hearing often, and um, not just in this conversation, but in numerous conversations with... Um, Kurdish opposition groups with Ahwazi um, opposition groups with, with others um, is I mean they they use the term cult when they talk about the MEK and some of the things that they've mentioned I mean I it's hard to confirm but it it does seem very cult-like it the I, I mean it, it Seamus, I, th I think that you know a little bit about the uh, Albania thing. Could you explain what's going on in Albania? Yeah. Okay, yeah. Um, so ju just a brief bit of context. Before um, the MEK entered their current stage around 2011, um, they lived at an abandoned military base, U.S. military base in Iraq called Camp Liberty. Um, this was not something that they built themselves. They, they were abandoned buildings, abandoned barracks that they moved into. Um, and they lived uh, in that kind of encampment. It was not a professional military base of really any kind. Um, they directed military operations outside of it, but it was not purpose-built. But then, uh, uh, this decade, they were kicked out of Iraq after an Iranian missile attack on Camp Liberty. And um, they went to Albania. And then they started building uh, this gigantic military compound um, outside of the capital, Tirana. And it, it's, it's, it's difficult to explain in this kind of format, uh, audio format, just like how weird this place is. Right. Um, there's, a, there's a road system going through it. There are, um, there's a museum that you can go to. They have an honor guard with full uniforms. There are arches. There are gates. There are uh, glass buildings. There are... Um, it, is, it is decked out. Um, it, it, is, it is meant primarily for propaganda purposes because they can show that they have the capability to do all of this. Um, but it's, it's not... Entirely for that, it, it's it, it the things that exist inside of it are real and they're they're used. Um, but uh, in terms of the cult thing, um, MEK defectors paint a very consistent picture of what is it is like inside of um, the group. Uh, the main thing that is consistent between testimonies is that. There is a great emphasis against any sort of um, uh, sexual relations whatsoever. Um, so the the weird thing is you have to be yeah, so the the primary ideological explanation is that um, there is to be no sexual congress or even marriage or even friendship until uh, the revolution is complete and the Islamic Republic is overthrown because engaging in those kinds of things. Uh, will result in diverting your attention away from the current objective. Um, however, this doesn't apply to the main leaders, uh, Marek Rajavi and Mansoud Rajavi, 
who are still technically married. And even then, Masur Rajavi took his wife, Maryam, from another member who was forced to divorce her. Um, it's completely inconsistent ideology. Um, aside from that, there are scattered reports of uh, b- babies being sent off to be adopted because having those children divert their attention away from the revolutionary prospects, um, people being uh, told not to masturbate, uh, thing total control over people's personal lives in order to divert them completely into following um, the MKs line. Uh, and you can see it, and you can see just little things of like how their marches and rallies go about. Um, all the chants are um, synchronized. Uh, they happen at specific times. Uh, it's really weird to watch. It doesn't strike you as a political rally that you might see at like um, like a Bernie Sanders rally or something, where it's very clearly a natural crowd. Everybody's in a very very specific position, and they have timed. Um, they, have, they have a specific time where they need to say things and chant fr- phrases and slogans. It's all painfully, painstakingly organized. And all of the ideological disagreements that exist within the monarchist community do not exist within the MBK at all. There is no disagreement with Madame Rajavi whatsoever. Um, it can't happen. Yeah, I've seen their protests in Washington and New York. Uh, it seems like they actually hire random people also to just come in and, and act as filling. Yeah. Like these random I was I was at yeah. I was at, I was at an MBK rally in Paris, uh, covering it for uh, my university paper. And there was Man, a you had group a cool university paper. Yeah, no, I, I agree. Um, I, uh, I I went out there and there was a group of people um, holding a banner of all the people who were massacred by Iran uh, in 1988, when they executed a lot of leftist prisoners. But I noticed that they weren't Iranian. They were very clearly white. And so I, I went up to them, and I and I asked them in French, uh, like, why are you at this rally? Like, do you believe in what they're saying? And they didn't speak any French. And then they were speaking the Slavic language to each other, and they didn't respond to me. These were not people who are Iranian or particularly um, involved in the Iranian political process. These are very clearly, it's a very common story. Foreign tourists who come to these countries are given money, they're bussed in on any K run buses to pad the numbers and to show wide support even if they have no idea what they're doing. That is bizarre. I, I mean, it's, uh, some, some of this stuff is uh, bizarre nonetheless. I mean, looking at some of the congresses that I've seen photos of and uh, some of the imagery that you see, they, they all would same clothes, stand in line, as you say. I actually happened to walk past one of their uh, protests or whatever you want to call it, manifestations in Stockholm once. And uh, it seemed like a, like you say, a very diverse group in the sense that they were majority non-Iranians. There were three, I think, maybe four Iranians and then uh, all middle-aged. And then you had uh swedes and well others like i guess but that might not be representative because uh, sweden's a pretty activist place there's a whatever you say there might be some swede <laughs> who joins it uh regardless uh but if the mek i mean just tr- trying to finish up what the mek would do if the mek did actually somehow actualize their plans uh, in some sort of let's say, post-invasion Iranian scenario, what would an MEK Iran look like? Have they stated any of their policies, uh, their ideas for how the state should look? They have a... Uh, I, I think um, Petty has probably seen this a lot of times before because it's been circulated a bunch to congressmen. Uh, Mariam Bajavi has a 10-point plan for Iran. Um, the issue is that the 10-point plan is incredibly vague, and it's the most basic um, pro-human rights Make thing Iran you great again? think or? of, really. But, I mean, essentially, yeah, like talking about free speech, free of the press, um, democracy, women's rights, which is all good, not denying that, but um, typically when you're a political group, government in exile, um, 
the plan should be way more specific and directed. And this is very clearly just supposed to appeal to American politicians in particular who don't know those specifics, not to Iranian people. Um, if you want to just look at what an Iran under the MEK would look like, you would just need to look at what the MEK has been doing so far. Um, Mario Majavi would probably move from being the current president-elect to president, and there would maybe be elections, but I don't even know. Um, I would expect the Iranian army to be reorganized in some way to be like the MEK, in that they have um, ultra-ideological um, uh, uniformity in that way. Um, but I would also expect free speech to take um, a significant nosedive from the already pretty bad situation that free speech in Iran already is. Um, uh, if I, I've seen a lot of um, what the MEK does through their other one TV station, and the name escapes me, unfortunately. And while there is a bit of a wider variety of, of media that they do, they do comedy shows occasionally, they do, um, they do news programs, but there is no real difference between it and what you would see on Iranian state TV. Um, a lot of talk about the leader, a lot of talk about um, its enemies, um, very little ideological diversity. Uh, you would be trading one um, despotic ruler in for another. There would be no definite change, I would say, other than maybe women don't have to wear the hijab. But other than that, if you if that's the only thing that changes, can you really say that Iran is free? So I basically, don't think so. you change the Judean people's front to the people's front of Judea. Right. Yeah, essentially. Yeah. I mean, the MEK did participate in the revolution, so, um, you know, it, it, it's, a, it's like a little they, Stalin yeah. Trotsky thing. Yeah, they, 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 but they've lost any um, actual change. Like, they will have, like, MEK in the 1980s, in the 1970s, early 1980s, that is a group that actually had, like, a vision. Uh, the MEK now, that's that's gone. You, you cannot... Um, I don't know what you call it. You can't. You can't, you can't put it back in the oven. Um, it, it's already been, the the die has been cast in that way. They can't go to immediately go back to promoting Islamic communism. That may have made them popular. They need to find something new. And no government is going to support Islamic communism. It is pretty. I would add, it is pretty funny that all these groups have these incredibly vague kind of freedom democracy, even though their visions for Iran are like really radically different. Like. Communist groups will say this, monarchist groups will say this, weird right-wing, like that restart opposition guy will say this. Ah, uh, love restart, love restart. I think it's just, it's an American thing, American-Iranian thing that, that I didn't understand. Uh, Twitter is a weird place. I get exposed to a lot of bizarre things on Twitter. I should spend less time on Twitter, but then again, should so should everyone. But the thing about Twitter is it, it shows you a lot of the weird stuff, some of the bizarre stuff that you wouldn't believe exists outside of the internet uh, in a very easy-to-read format. The, the restart guy seems to be some sort of a... Is it a QAnon uh, offshoot with Iranian... I don't know. P Petty, do you want to cover this one? I don't want to take up too much time, but I guess I'll just briefly... Yeah, he's this guy. He's like... Just like the MEK is kind of a self-styled government in exile. This is like a, a one-man self-styled government in exile. His ideology is like this bizarre combination of like... QAnon, it's mostly QAnon conspiracy theories with like Cyrus the Great motifs, Thomas Jefferson, and Rumi quotes thrown in. Uh, he believes that all other opposition groups are agents of the Islamic Republic. Uh, and basically his ideology is this weird mix with himself as the ruler. Uh, he does want a monarchy, but not the Pahlavi monarchy. And... He wants to rename Iran to the Cyrus Empire. And he seems to have had a bizarrely large following with, like, right-wing Americans because his ideology is so steeped in, like, the, the QAnon uh, Pizzagate conspiracy theories. I mean, I, I won't comment on this particular guy, but 
I am fascinated by, I, I, I mean, I've, I've done a few of these episodes and people might know that Kurds have a lot of political splintering. We have for maybe every 30 Kurds, you'll have a political group, more or less. I mean, we're, I'm exaggerating, but we do have a lot of political groups and we have splintering within political groups. But Iran is this bizarre Bizarre world where I, I, any conversation you have with an, an Iranian, uh, you recognize that they've, they're very political, no matter who it is. If it's a taxi driver, if it's uh, you know, a guy in a butcher shop, whatever, uh, they're, they're all very, very political. Uh, if, if not political in the sense of state ideology, they'll still be political in everyday kind of politics what well, i mean oh the the government should be doing this or this is bad or this is good and so on they'll have an opinion uh, where if you go to other if you've lived anywhere else you realize that that's not really that's not really normal um at, at, outside of iranian politics it's it's bizarre the QAnon guy or the restart guy or whatever you want to call uh just seems to me as a very typically Iranian thing that he is he's very political he's sure it's outlandish it's bizarre uh, but Iran is a very political place yeah and I yeah um yeah you want to take this betting sure sure yeah and I think that uh the reason you see a lot of splintering is not only because you know leftist groups tend to splinter political exile groups tend to splinter but also because there's like a bazillion different reasons to oppose the Islamic Republic. And so you do have a lot of people who oppose it for different reasons. They have different grievances and different interests. Like a guy who lost his fortune in the revolution and is a hardcore Persian nationalist is going to have a very, very different vision for Iran than a Kurdish communist, uh, just to give one example. And so a lot of these fights you see are, I mean... It's really like there is no Iranian opposition. There's a bunch of different people all hashing out different interests. And if one of them took power, all the other groups would probably join the former regime as a new opposition in exile. Yeah, um, on, on top of that, um, this was the thing that the Islamic Republic has done so well is that during the 80s, they pretty effectively destroyed any unified opposition that could take them down. I mean, I'm, I'm, looking at, I'm looking at this particular graph uh, right here. So just in case of one group, um, which was pretty formidable at the time, um, Organization of Iranian People's Fedayeen Guerrillas. They dissolved in 1980 due to um, being opposed so much by the Islamic Republic. So they turned into the Iranian People's Fedayeen Guerrillas, the Organization of Iranian People's Fedayeen Majority, uh, then it became Organization of Iranian People's Fatih Guerrillas Majority Left Wing, because apparently that wasn't specific enough. Then there was the minority groups, who were the uh, followers of the Identity Platform. There was the Organization of Iranian People's Fatih Guerrillas, which is the same name, but it's a different group. Um, and then there is the Fatih Organization, which is also the minority of the group that has that same name. Um, all of these groups, even though they have nearly exact same ideology, all hate each other and do not work with one another. Um, and this is this is the case through so many different groups. Um, and thus, unified opposition against the, against the Islamic Republic is pretty much impossible at this time, I would say, from outside Iran at the very least. I mean, that goes pretty well with how I see the ideas of Iranian main opposition. When people say Iranian main opposition, I... I don't understand the term. It um, it makes nearly as much sense as Kurdish main opposition. Who are you talking about? Who's the majority even uh, that you're talking about? Who who are the government? Uh, it, it, you have to define so many different things and put parameters for who you think would be representative that are so kind of exogenous, so bizarre that it, it doesn't make sense. But... I, if if we put the MEK, um, if we, we try to finish up with the MEK, 
uh, and move on to the Pallavis. Uh, the Pallavis, to me, uh, seem like, like they could put a claim to be a more uh, of official opposition of sorts because they have, I mean, maybe not the, the people in charge today, but at some point the Pallavis have run Iran. They have uh, had a go government. They have been... They've had links with different states. They have some sort of legitimacy. So who who are they? Uh, Matthew, could you introduce the Pallavis? Who are they and what do they want? Sure. So like you said, they were the government of Iran. Uh, when people talk about the Shah, that's Persian for the king, uh, the Pahlavi dynasty was a monarchy. Uh, it took power in Iran later than a lot of people realize. Uh, it, it took power in the 1920s in the wake of a failed communist revolution. Uh, this guy, this military officer, uh, Reza Khan, styled himself Reza Pahlavi. Uh, Pahlavi is a term for medieval Persian language. Uh, yeah, so he styled himself Reza Pahlavi. Uh, he was a, kind of styled himself this modernizer strongman, almost like Mustafa Kemal Ataturk. Uh, and he ran the country until the 1940s when he made this kind of unfortunate geopolitical decision to align himself with the German government at the time. This is why Aryanism and the idea of the Aryan race has so much weight in Iranian society today. Uh, Basically, the Nazis borrowed a very ancient Iranian concept of nobility to describe their master race, and then the Pahlavi dynasty saw the Nazis doing that, wanted to befriend them, and made it a part of the Iranian national ideology. Uh, the Allies invaded Iran to get rid of this pro-Axis uh, ruler, put in charge his son, Mohammad Reza Pahlavi. Uh, he ruled until the 1950s when a populist nationalist leader, Mohammad Mossadegh, tried to kick the British oil companies out. In the process, got into a power struggle with the king and tried to kick him out. Um, after which the CIA got rid of Mossadegh in a coup d'etat and brought Mohammad Reza Pahlavi back. He ruled the country until 1979. Um, yeah, he was, he was kicked out in the revolution. Uh, you know, as what happens when there is a bloody revolution and a lot of people dissatisfied with the system. There are a lot of people both inside and outside of Iran who have nostalgia for the last dynasty. It's less organized in the MEK. There's no Pahlavi government in exile. Um, there is a kind of claimant to the throne, uh, Reza II, who lives in Maryland. Although he himself is kind of coy about it, he doesn't say I want... He styles himself to be an Iranian opposition leader, but he doesn't explicitly say whether he wants the throne. Uh, it's, it's sometimes implied more than others. Um, but there are... there are the, the specific language that he uses is that um, if, if the people of Iran want him to, he will take the throne. He, like, he always uses that, like, yeah. Yes, yes. The few times I've heard him speak, I think there happened to be occasions where he says... Something along the lines of, if if asked head on, would you be the king of Iran or whatever, uh, he's uh, said something along the lines of, uh, if the the people want it, if the people want it, what that means is ambiguous to say the least. But if the people wanted, he would. There's gonna be know. a vote. There's gonna be a vote to, to appoint him. Exactly. The I mean, for for me as well. I mean, I, I could do the same. I will go to Iran and say, if the people want me to be the king, I'll be the king. It doesn't make any sense, but uh, <laughs> let's go on. Well, I think the the ambiguity uh, the ambiguity kind of serves him well because if he says I want to be king, then suddenly you take on a lot more responsibilities. You're the leader of a government in exile, and you've got to organize. But like, if he says explicitly, I don't want to be king, then like his gig is up because. He's just another Iranian-American in Maryland if he's not claiming to be the crown prince. So it, it, it's this kind of intentional ambiguity, I think. I don't know if he's actually interested in being king or if, you know, he just... And not necessarily in a selfish way. He just prefers to have the kind of influence that comes with the title. What? I mean, 
if if we go by the MEK not if, if we decide that they're not the the main opposition in Iran, whatever the term means, and if we say that the Pahlavis have to to some degree a higher uh, amount of public support. What does that look like in Iran? I mean, I, I remember not long ago seeing, um, well, they weren't Pahlavi supporters necessarily, but they were uh, protesters at the tomb of Cyrus chanting, chanting something along the lines of uh, bring back the monarchy or uh, long live Reza Pahlavi. Is that indicative of public support? Does it seem like the Pahlavis have some sort of a, a public backing? inside Iran. So that's uh, it's an important to make a distinction between Reza Pahlavi the first and Reza the second. I mean Reza the first was a big modernizing figure in Iran. He is popular. I mean the official government ideology he's bad, but you know he is more he is broadly popular even among people who didn't necessarily like his son just because he was like the great modernizer. He did create the modern Iranian nation state. Um, so that kind of nostalgia, it's important not to read too much into it. That being said, I mean, there is a lot of nostalgia for the son as well. Um, he, it was the previous regime. It makes sense that they at least have some kind of like political momentum or inertia um, based on having been, for a lot of people, the people who were in charge before everything went wrong. Uh, there, I, I've seen also chants specifically of like, Mohammed Reza Pahlavi, but it's been more rare. Um, but like, you know, I can't speak for the people of Iran. Uh, I can mostly speak to Washington kind of intrigue. Uh, it is hard to gauge these things in an authoritarian country, how much support the monarchy actually has. Um, I would just say it's important to, to make a distinction between kind of nationalist nostalgia for Reza Pahlavi the first and like actually wanting the Pahlavi dynasty back. Yeah, of course. Yeah, uh, that that makes sense. But you you did mention he was a, a reformer, but he was also the guy in charge of creating the Savak, uh, in charge of uh, brutalizing opposition inside Iran, of um, re really uh, instating a lot of horrible kind of practices. Isn't he remembered among the public as uh, that person as well? Yeah, I mean, I can't, again, I can't speak for Iranians inside Iran, but I'm sure there is. I, it's funny because a lot of the opposition to the regime now says the regime has become just like the Shah, which should tell you something about um, what kind of popular memory there is of that era, at least among some people. The people do forget that, or maybe not forget, intentionally gloss over that Iran under the Pahlavi dynasty was, like you said, the Savak was a secret police, um, especially left-wing opposition was very brutally suppressed, and the, the, I mean, at, after the Mossadegh coup especially, it took a very, very authoritarian turn. For a period, there were only two parties allowed, the monarchist party and the, the kind of uh, pro-German, pro-nationalist socialist kind of it's like syria with the ssnp in the bath and then in 19 oh are you talking about the uh the pan irondist party yes yes yeah love them <laughs> insane people yeah and then after after a point in the 70s it, they just got rid of those people too and it was it was an actual one-party state like there are as bad as the islamic republic is today there are more political parties allowed in iran however few that is than there were in 1978. Um, and yeah, I, I think that some people do have a consciousness of that, but we also shouldn't underestimate the nostalgia factor and how the grass looks greener, because I, I, I don't think it's necessarily a majority of the country, but there are, they do have some constituency in Iran. Uh, finally, about the Pahlavis, uh, I'd like to ask what I asked about the MEK, and that is, yeah, I mean, Reza Pahlavi the second. Uh, he might be an ambiguous. Oh, figure, actually, could I add something to that? Yeah, please Sorry. go on. Yes, uh, and an interesting thing about the Pahlavis uh, in the U.S. is, 
you know, they talk a lot in the same way that the MEK does about freedom and democracy and women's rights and this, but uh, if you bring up Mossadegh, it's very interesting to see what happens. Because, like, Mossadegh is a very, very popular figure among Iranians. I'd say he's one of the few, everyone tries to co-opt his legacy. Uh, he's one of the few universally popular figures. But if you ask a pathologist about it, it turns into, like, this man was a communist. That was Britain's oil. Why are you... I, I mean, I actually asked the crown prince. This is what I've kind of become infamous among the pathologist crowd for, is that I asked... Uh, there was a, the Crown Prince was giving a speech and this one journalist asked, do you think the United States should apologize for overthrowing Mohammed Mossadegh? And he gave this like long-winded non-answer that basically amounted to like, I'm not speaking as an American, this is the Iranian people's decision. So I followed it up logically with, well, what about you? Do you think the Pahlavi family is anything to apologize for? And he gave me this speech that was, amounted to basically like, I'm the right my father was the rightful king. He could do whatever he wants. Mossadegh was a usurper. And like that kind of thing is definitely does not have cachet among Iranians because it, it's Mossadegh was an extremely popular leader and he was taken out by foreigners. Like Iranians don't like the idea of foreign domination. That's one of the most I mean, this is the thing with the Iranian opposition in exile with the MEK and the Pahlavis is they keep poking the bear when it comes to Iranian national sentiments, like the MEK fought for Saddam Hussein, the Pahlavists are very, very anti-Mossadegh and defend the coup. Um, and I'm sorry to say, but a lot of like the ethnic minority groups, as legitimate as their grievances are, I'm not going to say that they're not legitimate, but a lot of Iranians do get a little bit, for lack of a better word, triggered at the idea of uh, separatist groups. Uh, it's Iranian nationalism is a very, very powerful ideology that that is also something people shouldn't underestimate. I I, I agree. Uh, the sec the last part, especially I uh, I remember at one point I had um, I was part of a conversation with an Iranian official, and um, he uh, it, it was an EU foreign action thing, and at some point. Um, we were discussing Iran itself and minorities came up and he found out that I was Kurdish. It came up, uh, I think because of my name, he asked. And uh, he uh, said something along the lines of, in Iran, we, I mean, Iran is a, such a wonderful place because we have all these nationalities and we, we have this pan-Iranian ideal of what it is to be Iranian. And uh, Iranians love the Kurds and so on. And I, I think that's uh, a uniquely Iranian concept of the, the Iranian imperial mini-state. Uh, because um, everything inside of Iran is Iran. It, 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 there's no part of Iran that's less Iran. You don't go, this part is less Iran and this part is more Iran. Even though some places like Fars province or whatever might be quintessentially Iranian, um, everything is treated as Iran. Uh, it is, uh, I mean, historically as well, it makes some sense because the, the borders of Iran have stayed very stable compared to the states around it. Um, so it makes sense having a national identity that is very closely affiliated with the peoples inside uh, those borders, but it is very interesting seeing the the, the main kind of uh, farce, I mean, as occurred, I would call them farce, uh, opinions of uh, what it is to be Iranian compared to what minorities think of what it is to be Iranian. Uh, those things are often uh, diametrically opposed. If you talk to an Ahwazi that is politically active rather than someone who kind of goes, uh, yeah, we're Iranian, uh, who's listening? Uh, it would um, th they would probably explain that they they are Iranian in the sense that they are from Iran and they might even be proud of that fact, but they consider themselves different from the majority of Iranians. Um, that's something that yeah, and of course I didn't mean well. to be, 
I didn't mean to be dismissive of, of uh, you know, these. I'm just saying that from the perspective uh, of, of, don't, kind of the bars. Don't be worried. I'm yeah. just saying this to kind of include the, the Kurdish perspective. I'm not, I'm not saying this because I believe you to be <laughs> part of that <laughs> kind of, uh, uh, a, you know, pr uh, pro everything in Iran is Iran. I, I, I kind of conceptualization of Iran, but it's just, uh, it is interesting to see the difference. So it's a lot like Russia in that it's kind of an imperial state that became a nation state uh, pretty much seamlessly. Uh, and does, does, and you have the same kind of dynamic, first of all, of like a kind of state church and state ideology uh, binding different ethnic groups together, but also of the kind of imperial core ethnic group kind of being like, we love our, uh, you know, Tatars or Kurds or whatever, but then some of the minority groups, they kind of like, it's kind of like a very strong embrace that turns into choking. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I won't speak speak too much about that because, uh, I mean, from the, the Kurdish perspective, uh, there's, um, the reality in Iran is quite different from uh, how the Kurdish reality is outside of Iran. At least inside of Iran, there's a province called Kurdistan. The, 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 there's a recognition, uh, recognition that Kurds exist, that they inhabit some places inside Iran, and not just that, that they don't come from somewhere else. Because often with Kurds, there's this kind of myth, uh, and it is fascinating, uh, how Kurds are the only people in, in the Middle East that seem to have come from somewhere else. Everyone else comes from here, but Kurds come from somewhere else. If uh, you go in Turkey, they'll say, well, Kurds didn't exist in Anatolia uh, 1,500 years ago. Yeah, yeah, of course. Of course they didn't. Neither did most of the people inside Turkey well, that define as uh, kind of people inside Turkey. They came from somewhere else. But in Iran, that doesn't happen. Iran has this separate idea of uh, what it is to be Kurdish because they have the idea that they, they own... Uh, these ethnic ethnicities, the Azeris are Iranian, they're part of the Iranian people. Uh, the Kurds are Iranian, they're part of the Iranian people, and so on. It's uh, it, it is interesting how, how that happens, and I, I I agree that the it is how it is probably because of that transition from imperial state to nation state. Uh, whereas as Aris Rusinos likes to say, uh, civilizational states. <laughs> yeah, sure. Absolutely, and I, I don't disagree necessarily with the Iranian conceptualization of, of Iran. Uh, yeah, I, I know you want to move on to uh, the State Department. I would just I also add, yes. <laughs> um, would, would, would you mind if I just added like a, a very short thing or would you want to, we don't have time? Uh, we're already at about 50 minutes, so we probably don't have time unless we've got some very, very interested Iranians uh, listening. But uh, what I would uh, like to ask is, I mean, it, regarding the State Department, it is, why uh, is there such a focus on Iran? Why is Iran the prime adversary in, uh, in the Middle East? Why is every U.S. decision seemingly for the last couple of years, even before the, the Trump administration, even we had this pivot towards diplomacy, but that didn't really always pan out. But the, the prime actor is always Iran. Why is that? Why is, this, why is the U.S. Administra administration so interested in Iran? Yeah, so um, I think that it's kind of Iran is kind of the, the enemy that so many different factions converge on in the U.S. and you won't have pushback. China, you'll have a lot of pushback if you try to ramp up hostility against them from pro-business, although this is getting less and less, uh, from various doves. I mean, they're a, they're a big state, so it's kind of, you can tell there'll be consequences. Russia, too, has become very polarized, but in Iran, until the last couple of years, it's kind of a, a one-way issue. There's no real opposition to hawkishness against Iran. Maybe people who are a little un uneasy or uncomfortable, but there's a million different reasons, different interest groups pushing. Um, I would say on the, on the left, there's a lot of kind of centrist Democrats, uh, 
particularly the Syrian civil war and the Assad regime have made a lot of them hostile. Um, that, that Twitter account, What's Bathin, is kind of the id of these people. Um, and then on the right, you have like John Bolton types who think the Cold War has never, has never ended and would like a new ideological, would like to finish the job against all the rest of America's ideological enemies. You have people who know the Cold War is over, but they need a new enemy. You have kind of like various uh, evangelical types who, I mean, it's interesting, like it's a mirror image, like, oh, Iran is this state full of, run by people who are pouring over esoteric religious texts, trying to make the apocalypse happen through modern statecraft. I mean, there you go. Um, you have a lot of uh, just general Islamophobes who don't know much about Iran, but are vaguely hostile to anything Muslim. I think Michael Flynn, weird as it is that he was a Turkish agent, kind of fits into that. And then you have like, and then you have just people who hate Obama and Obama's legacy. And one of Obama's biggest diplomatic uh, achievements was the nuclear deal. So therefore it becomes a culture issue, culture war issue. We don't really know what the nuclear deal was, but we know that it was Obama giving money to America's enemies. So we have to, Obama took the hostility with Iran from like 11 down to eight. So we've got to ramp it up to 13. And uh, yeah, I think all these different factions kind of converge together and like to bring it back to the Pahlavis like the idea of these pro-western kind of aristocratic uh, you know hot women um, pro-Israel etc cetera, etc cetera, they, they, they fit perfectly into so many different groups projection of what they want for Iran American groups, I mean. Yeah, of course. Um, Sorry, I hope I, that wasn't too long-winded. No, it, it, it wasn't. I, I was actually hoping for a, a short answer like that because it was a really big question. I could have had an entire episode with just that question. Um, I, um, I, I have about a zillion... I, I don't want to say a zillion, but I have a lot of other questions about Iran that we could, we could probably cover... Um, but we're already at time. No one's going to listen to this more than 55 minutes. So uh, Seamus and Matt, thank you very much for being on CSAT. I hope to have you on another time. And thank you for teaching me about Iranian opposition groups or the main opposition, if you want to call them that. Thank you for having me. Thanks for having us.